Concordia International School, Shanghai, and I'm very fortunate to be joined here with four of my students, and they'll introduce themselves as they have each of the pieces of the presentation. But first and foremost, I'm a Montana native. Grew up in Great Falls, went to Carroll College in Helena, and it's my absolute pleasure to be able to share my love of Montana and Western history with my students who are studying in Shanghai from all different parts of the world. When I moved to Shanghai, I kind of thought that meant I was done indulging myself in Montana's past, but through a series of serendipitous discoveries, we discovered that Montana has a very deep Chinese history, and we can work to bring world resources to bear to study this history. Now, I got to be honest, that wasn't the first moment that I knew of Chinese history in Montana, because our work builds on the key work that others have been do doing before us. So Janet Sperry and Patricia Bick did an amazing job cataloging and preserving these documents. And then my mentor, Dr. Robert Swartout, has the foundational piece of the Chinese in Montana and the Rocky Mountain West with his article from Kwangtung to Big Sky, and it's been our standard reading. So it's been, very, it's been my pleasure to connect all of the work that's come before me and hope to do work in a new way. Now, this is a, a groundbreaking program because these are mostly high school students with one exception, a current sophomore in college. But to empower these students as historians, to collaborate with the Montana Historical Society that's been amazingly open, friendly, and accommodating, to try and give these students opportunities, but then through the mutually beneficial aspect, to also deepen our understanding of Montana, Chinese history, and world history, it's just been a, a teacher's dream. So I'm very, very fortunate to do that. We've got a couple of pieces to our presentation today, two different films that we'll watch, and then the story of these documents as told by the students who are interpreting them. So I'll turn it over now to our first student, Madison Bull. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming on this afternoon to hear my peers and I talk about our project. So um, I'm a student filmmaker at Concordia International School, Shanghai, and Mr. Johnson brought me on this project to make a film on China Row. Can I get a show of hands? How many of you have visited the Forest Vale Cemetery? Wow, okay. <laughs> so as many of you probably know, there's a section in Forest Vale called China Row, and it's a sharp contrast with the beauty that Forest Vale is. And so in my film, I want to talk about maybe why that contrast is and also go into Chinese burial practices. So um, before I move on to show my film, I want to give a few thank yous. First of all, to the Mon Montana Historical Society for letting me sit in a corner for two weeks and work on this film with no questions. Um, Second of all, I want to thank Ms. Patricia Bick. Um, her invaluable source about China Row has really been like the Bible for me for this project. And also for um, Ms. Janet Sperry for sharing her resources and photographs with me. It's been really nice to see such passion for China Row. And lastly, he told me not to thank him in this, but I want to thank my teacher, Mr. Mark Johnson, for all of his support for me during this project and also for other history-based videos that I've produced. So without further ado, let's get started. From 1890 to 1955, approximately 200 Chinese immigrants were buried at China Row in Helena, Montana. This cemetery is adjacent to the Forest Vale Cemetery, a well-kept area where many of Montana's founding fathers were buried. China Row is littered with a broken altar, pieces of pottery, and fragmented tombstones, some of which have had their bodies exhumed. 
The Ruins of China Row tell the story of Chinese culture and funeral rites, as well as the Chinese experience in the West. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the state of Montana was home to a sizable community of Chinese immigrants. Attracted to the possibilities in America, they found work on the transcontinental railroad and gold mining industries. Three-fourths of Chinese immigrants sought work in California. However, mining companies only employed a third of them. The Chinese dispersed throughout the country, settling in every major mining area in the West. Faced with opposition from labor unions, anti-Chinese laws emerged, making continued employment in mining difficult. Chinese immigrants began opening laundromats and restaurants in hope of earning enough money to return to their home villages. The Chinese contributed greatly to Western economy, but were met with disdain from white American and European laborers who believed the Chinese were polluting American society. Due to lengthening times of stay, many Chinese spent the rest of their lives in America. Chinese culture highlighted the importance of a proper burial, as a spirit that did not receive proper veneration from its descendants wandered through the world as a hungry ghost. These practices were of paramount importance to the community. To prevent such an unfortunate afterlife from occurring, families of the deceased performed numerous funeral rites. The following description comes from a Chinese woman's funeral ceremony in 1884, located in Boise, Idaho. As the body lay in state, Chinese women in Chinese garb wept and bowed heads to the floor over the remains. The sun covered the body with a scarlet and white blanket of death, sprinkled over it the last small tablets, which are passports to heaven, and sacred nuts for immediate food. The last rite before the coffin was closed was to sprinkle the body with quantities of Chinese money to pay the passage to the other world. The body was taken to the Morris Hill Cemetery, Boise, Idaho. The women followed in carriages. The sun came in a big bus with food, incense, and candles heaped in a large basket. On top was a pile of papers in Chinese, a message to the other world without which no one could reach heaven. A Chinese funeral practice varied heavily based on wealth. Unlike the simple, inexpensive practices of the Chinese woman of Idaho, some funerals were a spectacle to see. It began with a procession to the grave starting at sunset, led by a brass band. The hearse was followed by 60 or 70 Chinese wearing white muslin sashes tipped with black crepe. A group of 60 Chinese women followed. At the graveside ceremony, the deceased's overcoat, valued at $50, and a pair of blankets costing at least $15 were burned, so he would not be cold in the other world, but would have his coat and blankets. The practices of the Chinese burials were seen as foreign and thought to be pagan-like. We attended a big celebration at Chinatown last Sunday. What we didn't understand about the ceremonies would make a very large book. This distrust caused the Chinese to have areas of burial separate than other cemeteries. Similar to China Row was a cemetery in Colma, California. Cultural differences between the Chinese and non-Chinese communities precluded the burial of Chinese bodies in the Fifth Street cemeteries, now Pioneer Park. A Chinese necropolis was different in many ways. A south-facing slope was preferred as it was believed to be rich with qi, a vital energy thought to flow through sites, while slow-moving water around the burial ground brought good luck. According to the principles of feng shui, a good graveyard was protected from evil winds and exposed to good winds. Have a good view, be near water, and be in harmony with its surroundings. 
Graves were oriented north to south. Another cemetery like this was found in Butte, Montana. This cemetery shows the Chinese rituals as well as the oppression of the surrounding white community. A death in Chinatown meant a funeral, and a funeral meant a colorful procession to the rear of old Mount Moriah Cemetery, where the Chinese burial ground was located. After an elaborate ceremony, an equally elaborate repast was laid out upon the freshly heaped mound, a menu consisting of all the delicacies dear to the Chinese taste and custom. When the mourners had safely gone, the white audience, consisting, usually, of assorted alcoholics and vagabonds, sat down to the feast, toasting the departed one liberally with his own rice whiskey. Friends of the deceased returning the next day for the crockery noted with satisfaction, no doubt, that the food had been consumed, and were thus gladdened to know that the departed one would be enabled to reach the seventh Chinese heaven, at the very least. After burial, the process to a fulfilling afterlife was not yet over. A caveat of this process was that the Chinese believed it was necessary to receive a final burial in mainland China for the spirit to be truly at rest. The process of exhuming and preparing the remains for shipment and reburial was coordinated by the family members or by the surrounding Chinese community. In Montana, if a Chinese person did not hold sufficient funds to be shipped back to China, he was buried at China Row in the Forest Vale Cemetery. Then, when enough money was raised, the bodies were exhumed. The bone pickers take the longest bone, say the leg, get a box made of that length and 18 inches or 2 feet wide and deep for the reception of all the bones. The polishers do not touch the bones with their hands, but handle them very dexterously with two sticks. They're very scrupulous in preserving every bone. The small box is then nailed up, and the bones of the celestial, in due time, are laid in his native land as per agreement. Exhumation and traditional funeral practices were meant to be performed by family, but many Chinese laborers came to America without close ones. In this case, fraternal and clan organizations underwent such processes. Communities all pitched in to aid their fellow man in their burial and often donated to a collection for it. Joining together in 1851, fraternal and clan organizations created the Chinese Six Companies. The Chinese Six Companies' main objective was to provide a sense of identity for their culture facing oppression and exclusion. These companies were key in aiding fellow countrymen with immigration but also at the back end of their life with the exhumation of bodies. While shipping of corpses from the United States to China was legal, a steep tariff and the mandatory zinc coffin was a large investment. Helena's Chinese community leader, Tong Hing, was unsatisfied with these expenses and soon found a way around the system. He began placing the remains in barrels and labeled them all the same pickles. He was successful with this practice until an agent claimed that he smelled mice and discovered the corpses. The article detailing this story went on to assert that Tong Hing left the barrel company and stroked his cue as he contemplated the cremation business. Chinese burial practices represent more than tradition or freeing of souls. They represent a community holding on to its culture in a foreign environment. Without holding on to their culture, the Chinese may have crumbled and changed in order to avoid oppression from the white community. There is a lesson to be learned from China Row, as even though their practices may have seemed strange to outsiders, they were of value to the Chinese and therefore needed to be respected. China Row stands today as an example of a culture and the importance of its preservation. Its neglected nature is a metaphor, 
both for the exclusion of the Chinese during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but also for the fact that too often, the contribution of the Chinese to the development of the West goes unacknowledged. By paying proper respect to the memory of the Chinese in the American West, maybe their souls can finally be at rest. Great. <clears throat> Hello? Okay. So uh, my name is Jonathan Tai. I'm also a student uh, from Concordia International School, Shanghai. And so uh, Madison's film uh, deals with the Chi Chinese in life. I mean, sorry, in death. My film deals with the Chinese in life. Now, uh, specifically though, this is in political life through the Chinese Empire Reform Association. Now, uh, one of our goals as a group was to bring a worldview to this project. And uh, so for me, that allowed me to uh, take what was happening here and connect it back to what was happening in China. And through that, I was able to provide a, well, to get a better understanding of the story that I'm about to show you. This is Marysville, Montana. What was once a flourishing mining town is now a desolate image of the Great Wild West. Little do people know that something that could invoke such stereotypical American imagery actually hit a large population of Chinese miners that wanted to change their Chinese reality by using skills and knowledge they learned in the New World to empower their homeland. They called themselves the Chinese Empire Reform Association. Attracted by opportunities of gold and riches, Chinese immigrated into America looking to support their families back home and escape floods, famine, conflicts, and a deteriorating Qing dynasty that was humiliated by unequal treaties and weakened by rebellion. Around 250,000 Chinese immigrated to the U.S. in four decades between 1842 and 1882 despite facing death by prosecution of treason by the Qing government, who considered emigration as disloyalty. Attitudes towards overseas Chinese changed, however, as they began to become economically successful, increasingly considered useful as their efforts supported and enriched their home. Life was not always better for overseas Chinese. Discriminatory policies soon emerged and the dysfunctional Qing court was unable to protect the Chinese in America, let alone oversee internal affairs. Viewed as unwanted competition against white Americans, the Chinese were singled out by boycotts and statutory measures. However, in 1896, one particular boycott met with unprecedented resistance from the local Chinese population of Butte, Montana. A cocktail of the lingering effects of the Panic of 1893, as well as the defeat of Free Silver, sparked a boycott against all Chinese businesses and products. The boycotters employed a variety of arguments against Asians including the threat of cheap labor, capital flight, and cultural and racial inferiority. Many such arguments fell underneath the umbrella of America versus Asia. Such anti-Asian sentiment had already manifested itself in the Chinese Exclusion Act, as well as the massacres at Hell's Canyon of 1887, Rock Springs of 1885, and the Tacoma Riot of 1885. 
The Butte Sunday Bystander carried an article entitled The Moral Side of the Chinese Boycott that labeled Chinese laundries as pest houses and the laundrymen as leprous, mouth-spraying, and diseased. Hum Fei, owner of Hum Fei's Palace Restaurant, contacted the Chinese Six Companies. The Chinese Six Companies were an umbrella organization located in San Francisco who represented the Chinese in America. They decided that they would not intervene with the boycott and strongly advised Hum Fei not to either. Despite their suggestion, he decided to take matters into his own hands. Along with Hum Fei, Deer Yik, Hum Tong, and Hui Pak brought suit against several members of the boycott, accusing the defendants of violating the rights of the Chinese. The Chinese community also filed a petition joining the prosecution in redress of the boycott. Wilbur Fisk Sanders, a statesman and one of the best lawyers in state, was hired by the Chinese and one of the few willing to defend them in this case. Sanders attempted to prove that a boycott existed and that the Chinese were financially injured as a result. Since the Chinese were foreigners, he stated that they were protected by treaties between the United States and China and claimed that the matter would be made a diplomatic issue. The Butte Chinese went on to win the case, empowering them with the knowledge of the American legal system as well as the ability to use it to better their own lives. However, the Chinese in the West were not the only ones caught up in political strife. Their compatriots at home also found themselves in turmoil that would be key to the formation of the Chinese Empire Reform Association. Devastated by the First Sino-Japanese War, the Qing Dynasty had long been in decline. Upon learning of the humiliating terms of the Treaty of Shimonoseki, candidates for the civil service examination signed a petition that urged reforms strengthening China, thus preventing further disgrace. The call for reform challenged the long-standing Confucian system which emphasized tradition and hierarchy. The leader of the movement, Kang Yaowei, challenged the examination system as outdated and appealed to the newly instated Guangxu Emperor regarding its change. Kang was granted a private audience with the Emperor, one that lasted five hours, and along with Liang Xichao, another key player in the reforms, advised the Emperor to issue a flurry of imperial edicts that imposed reforms that modernized education, economics, military training, and foreign affairs. In order to enact the reforms, the Guangxu Emperor appointed six other reform leaders aside from Kang Yaowei and Liang Xichao to administer the efforts of reform. When the Dowager Empress Cixi heard of the changes that were taking place, she immediately retook control of the throne and put a stop to them by first sentencing the reform leaders to death and putting the Guangxu Emperor on house arrest. The reform movement only lasted about a hundred days. Kang Yaowei and Liang Xichao were lucky to get away with their heads. That was not the only problem with the reforms as few educated Chinese had direct experience with the Western technologies and systems that reformers had wanted to adopt. Tan Zitong, a leading reformer who had been executed, remarked, In China, during the last several decades, where have we had genuine understanding of foreign culture? When have we had scholars or officials who could discuss them? You have never dreamed of or seen the beauty and perfection of Western legal systems and political institutions. The overseas Chinese, however, were perfectly suited for the situation. They had the experience with the Western industry and legal systems Kang Yaowei and Liang Xichao needed to bring back to China. Groups such as that in Montana had lived the beauty and perfection of Western legal systems. Realizing this, the two established the Chinese Empire Reform Association, or otherwise known as the Bao Huanghui, 
1899 in Vancouver, British Columbia. The organization rapidly expanded with branches around the world, all aiming to return power to the rightful ruler, the Guangxu Emperor, from the Dowager Empress who had retaken power in order to halt the reforms modernizing China. Montana had 12 branches of the organization, and both Liang and Kang visited them in 1903 and 1905, respectively. When Liang visited the Butte branch, he noted that, So far we have met with great success in our work of reform, and expect to keep right on meeting with it. The Chinese of Butte are quite enthusiastic in their work. The Montanan branches built upon a pre-existing sense of community pride, nationalism, and empowerment based on their exceptional use of and experience with the American legal system, winning a key success that emboldened the community. A close analysis of the extant documents of the Chinese Empire Reform Association gives insight to their perspective, leading to the decisions that they made using the American legal system. Every branch of the Bao Huanghui made a photo montage, each with the Guangxu Emperor at the very top and some with Kang Yaowei and Dan Xichao flanking the emperor. Underneath were the photos of all the members with the officers on the top rows and the rest of the members underneath them. It is no surprise to see those who led the fight against the boycott, such as Hung Fei and Quan Loi, as leaders of their branch of the organization. The dress code of the members in the photos gives some insight as to whether they identified more with the Chinese or American culture. Certain photos show members dressed in full western suit and combed cropped hair, suggesting their ready acceptance of American customs, whereas others were dressed more traditionally. The members associating more with Chinese culture sported a half-shaven head and a long thin braid. This was known as a queue, required by the Qing government as a mark of subservience. The Qing dynasty warned, keep your hair, lose your head, to say that to wear a different hairstyle was punishable by death. It was therefore a sign of loyalty to the imperial government to maintain the queue. The Chinese who associated more with American culture were not necessarily born into it. Some decided to adopt it after moving to America, notably in those whose pictures show them in American dress, but with half a head of hair, and the other half still growing out as if it were shaved before. The photo montage of the Marysville branch of the organization gives further insight into its goals, specifically military education and modernization displayed by the Western warships and artillery shown in the top corners of the photo montage. In fact, the Montana branches along with other branches began military drills in hopes of returning the rightful Guangxu Emperor by force if necessary. The Butte branch in particular had a company that could execute the various commands of its officers with almost the same accuracy and precision as a well-drilled company of American soldiers. Each member was given a Spanish Mauser rifle and a uniform made of a white hat with a yellow cord, band and cross arms designating the number of the company, yellow canvas blouse and canvas leggings, together with a cartridge belt and bayonet and scabbard attached to the belt. If the Qing were to adopt Western military practices, China could become stronger and able to protect itself and its overseas citizens. Both the Butte and the Helena branches filed Articles of Incorporation with Montana's Secretary of State, thus becoming officially recognized entities. In these documents, some of their other goals as an organization become clear. 
The purpose and business of this corporation shall be for social intercourse, mutual helpfulness, mental and moral improvement, physical and mental development, promoting the cause of temperance and moral reform, and encouraging general education of the Chinese people in the principles of the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America. It is important to note that the articles of incorporation between the Butte and Helena branches are nearly word for word the same. It suggests that there was a great interconnectivity between the two. In the words of Tran Loi, a principal advocate in the Butte branch, We want railroads and modern advantages possessed by other countries. We want a Congress and a Senate, the same as exists in the United States. We want educational institutions for our people. Our reform movement is not a revolutionary one. It is strictly an educational one, having as its object the lifting of the country and its people from the rut into which they were thrown so many years ago. The victory in the Butte boycott case, as well as education in military and other Western ideals, is evidence of the adaptations of the Chinese community. The Chinese Empire Reform Association thrived amongst the Montana Chinese who had these empowering experiences and whose efforts and knowledge were exactly what the reform-minded Chinese wanted but did not have. I want to say thank you to our two filmmakers. They've been working tirelessly over this trip, and I think you can see that their efforts really, they were very impressive. So thank you, Madison and Jonathan. So the other part of our project here was translating documents. So two years ago, we translated documents that were from the late 19th, early 20th century, and they sort of focused on a, like a broader swath of the Chinese-American community. This time, it's really one narrative, and it's a little later. Most of our letters are from the 40s, like the late 40s or the early 50s. So what we're doing, kind of logistically here, is we take images of the Montana Historical Society's documents, you know, the letters that we have on file here, we digitize them and then we send them back to our translation team working at Concordia International School in Shanghai. So this is students, parents, teachers. Alan's mom has actually been very helpful in translating documents. So it's really a, an international, intergenerational effort. And the reason we have to go to these lengths to get these letters translated is sort of an interesting one. So these letters are all written in traditional script. So today, if you read or speak Chinese, it's more likely that you read simplified characters. And that's because when Mao and the communists took power, one of the first things they did was to simplify the characters in the Chinese uh, you know, written alphabet. So if you, you know, learned how to read Chinese after, you know, like the early 50s, late 40s, you can't really read these documents. However, if you're from Hong Kong or Taiwan, or if you learned you know, how to read or write before this takeover, or if you're just a specialist in the field, you can still read these documents. And that's why we have to send them all the way back to Shanghai to be translated. Now, another difficulty that we've sort of had to struggle with but have immediately, you know, 
ultimately overcome is with dialects. So while Chinese written can be read by anyone who can read it, the way it's verbalized is different depending on your dialect. So Putonhua, which is Mandarin, uh, would verbalize sort of the main figure of these documents as Wing Hong Hum, but or sorry, as uh, Tan Yong Hung. Tan Yo Hung. Whereas in Toishanese or Toishanhua, which is his dialect, it's Wing Hong Hum. So most of our translators speak Mandarin, and when they verbalize names of people or places, it comes out differently as the people actually in these letters would have said them. So we have to corroborate their translations with some English language documents or census records where they have their names spelled out in pinyin or you know, an English alphabet, but saying Chinese words. So our narrative, the letters that we've been translating, focus on one family. They're from Toishan in southern China, which is where most of the Chinese immigrants in Montana come from. And it's mainly these two brothers. So Wing Hong Hum is the elder brother, and he came to America when he was about 15 or 16. Wing Gun Hum is the younger brother, and he's stuck in Hong Kong. So what much of these letters focus on is the efforts of Wing Hong Hum and others to get Wing Gun Hum out of Hong Kong to America. Now both of the brothers are American citizens. You know, how is this possible? We know that from the Naturalization Act, which is a little earlier, and then the Chinese Exclusion Act, that you couldn't become a naturalized citizen if you were a Chinese immigrant. However, this doesn't apply to Wing Hong Hum and Wing Gun Hum because their grandfather, as you can see from one of the grandfather's return trips to America, was a US citizen. He was born in San Francisco in 1878, and because of this, Wing Hong Hum and Wing Gun Hum have derivative citizenship. So the, both of them are American citizens and thus should be able to kind of go and come freely from America. No, and we know a little earlier, the US government considered Wing Hong Hum a US citizen as well. This is his deferment notice for the draft in, I think, right, you know, before uh, World War II was declared. And he's given class three deferment. Now, class three deferment is when you're deferred because you have dependents. You're the sole supporter for a, you know, a person or some people. If he had been given class four deferment, that would be what's given to you if you're an alien. So we know that the US government, because of this, considered him to be a US citizen. However, they're still having you know, immense difficulty getting Wing Gun Hum into America. Now here we have a letter from Glenn Jin, who was a, an attorney working with the two brothers, you know, to the friends of Wing Hong Hum. For reason or reasons unknown to all interested parties, the consul was not satisfied. Uh, the two men are sort of doing everything in their power to bring Wing Gun Hum into America. Here's a, a particularly sad letter. You can see the, the date up there it was written in 1952, and Wing Hong Hum is saying to the American consul, I, I, you know, I wrote you in 1950 about getting my brother out, and we, you know, we have evidence that they're doing all the correct steps. In their letter, you know, previously the attorney says that for reason or reasons unknown, the consul was not satisfied. As historians looking back 
on this period of time, we know the U.S. consul's reasons. So in the late 40s, the communists win power in China. You'll also notice that this is during the beginning of the Red Scare in the 1950s, McCarthyism. You know. J. Edgar Hoover said that uh, Chai Com or Chinese communist infiltration was one of the biggest threats to U.S. security. And there's a, a man who really kind of comes to the front of this issue of being suspicious of Chinese immigrants for having communist sympathies. And this man is Everett Drumright, who was a consul in the 1950s at the American consulate in Hong Kong. And he was deeply suspicious of any Chinese immigrant who was trying to come to America, suspecting all of them of being communist spies. And he would latch on to these very valid Chinese cultural practices, for example, naming your children similar things, so Wing Gun Hum, Wing Hong Hum. He saw that as a way of Chinese immigrants to memorize false names. So he's a deeply paranoid figure, but he's echoing sentiments from people like McCarthy, people like J. Edgar Hoover. You know, he says here, Communist China is able to bend American citizenship to the service of her purposes alone. And this is really the reason that they're having so much difficulty getting Wing Gun Hum out. You know, even though he's an American citizen, that citizenship is called into question. And we see the, the brothers really making efforts to combat this, this uh, sort of prejudice by the American consul. You know, this, um, the drumwright and you know, the American consul earlier institute mandatory blood tests for people trying to immigrate from China to America. And you know, this is the early 50s. When they were testing for blood, it's not DNA, really. It was your blood type. You know, we know now that your blood type might not necessarily be the same as your brother. You know, it could be the same as someone you're not related to. So this is the, the technology they're using, and it's really just meant, and this was kind of realized at the time, just meant to bar citizenship or to bar immigration. And the, the brothers realized this. And in this letter from Wing Gun Hum to Wing Hong Hum, you know, he asks his brother to find a powerful and renowned Westerner, you know, thinking that um, a Westerner would have more sway in the American political system, system than a, a Chinese lawyer. We know from documents that we, we've seen at the MHS that they did reach out to a powerful Westerner, Mike Mansfield. So we have a series of letters to and from Mike Mansfield where it's, it's pretty apparent that he was trying to, you know, even after he's a senator, help the brothers in their effort to bring Wing Gun Hum into America. You know, they're both citizens. Uh, but unfortunately, it, it, it's not really successful that we can see. We don't actually know if Wing Gun Hum ever left China yet. And in this letter from 1952, which is the same date as the letter that Wing Hong Hum sent, that said they've been working on this for two years, Wing Gun Hum says, you know, this makes me have the feeling of waiting eagerly without a clear target. So they take all of these steps, but, but still, you know, they're met with a, a barrier every time. They send in a blood test, and then they have to do another form. They get Mike Mansfield, and then they need family photographs. So, you know, given this difficult situation, given how dedicated the consul was to keeping Wing Gun Hum out, why were they still trying to have him come to America? And for that question, I'm going to throw it to Alan. I'm going to retire this 
walking mic because I don't walk and I like to thump on podiums. Um, so we need to know at this point in Chinese history that, this, that they have just undergone one of the greatest civil upheavals in that century's history, the Chinese Civil War. So these two, these are the faces of these two ghostly apparitions here. It, on the right is Mao Zedong, on the left is Chiang Kai-shek. They represent and, and led the two major warring faction this, in, factions in this war, the communists and the nationalists. So we know at about the time that we're getting these letters from Taishan in southern China that the communists have basically got it going in northern China. So in southern China, the nationalists are trying to stave off the, um, the insurgency, if you will, of the, of the guerrilla forces of the communists from the north. So the, um, the letters reflect this pattern of, of history in, in the revolution. So this letter from Wing Songham, who's living in the village of uh, Bixui in Toisan, is saying that the, the, the measures being implemented by the nationalist authorities still in power in southern China are really as pressurizing as the communists who are threatening to you know, invade and cut off infrastructure from northern China. So from this, the measure specifically is piglet soldiers. And what that means is child soldiers. So you can see that the nationalist authorities are trying to do all they can. They're trying to muster with all their authority um, anyone who can basically hold a weapon and fight off the guerrillas. So they do mention here in this, in this excerpt here um, a sort of tone that isn't necessarily partisan for the nationalists or the communists. So they're saying the nationalists are extorting us, they're drafting people, it's, this is a pressure from one side, and on the other side, you've got pressure from communists. They're coming in, they're going to cut, cut off infrastructure, they're looting, they're behaving like a guerrilla army does. So the people living in this situation right now are in re really dire straits. So you can see the motivation for wanting to take at least one of their family out of the country. Um, another motivation that would pull um, some people, immigrants, specifically this family, to Montana, would be the opportunity and occupations they had um, that, would, that were made specifically um, in this period possible. So you can see in the top right, 1943 is the date of this, which is an Anaconda Copper Mining Company incident report. This is an accident that happened, um, as you might infer, from his job as a miner. Um, he started, Wing Hong Hum started this job in 1942. This is in the year following America's entry in World War II. So this is um, really as a result of the shortage of um, white workers who had left to fight in the war. Really, Chinese workers were not allowed to, to work in underground hard rock mining for six decades. And it's remarkable that at this point we can see, as we did reading um, Rose Hem Lee's um, seminal work, Occupational Invasion in Butte, Montana, that six workers were allowed in, four left very quickly, and only two remained. So Wing Hong Hum, as we can see from this report and from other corroborating documents, was one of those workers in, in an underground mine. Um, we might want to pay attention specifically to some terms in this, which we've had to, had to find for us at the World Museum of Mining. We had a great tour there, um, very informative as to what um, a student miner would be, what stope is. Um, and he was working in the Mountain Con mine. This emerges in, an, in a separate incident report, but he's working in the famous Mile High, Mile Deep mine in, in Butte. Um, and this is an excerpt from a diary that Rose Emily quoted in that, in that work of hers. So this diary is interesting in that it wasn't um, ascribed to Wing Hong Hum, but between the two people, we can trace the occupational history of his, um, his time in Butte, and we can say, first, as a student slope miner, we, we know from the incident report that he was a student miner in 1942. Besides the diggings varied in temperature, he, we knew that his environment, the environment of this miner, was extremely hot. We knew that 
when you're a mile deep, it's going to be a bit hot because you're close to the mantle of the earth. So the environment that he's working in is reflected in his diary. And also, he goes to union meetings. If you're working in the 40s as a miner in Butte, then you're virtually bound to be a union member. But as a Chinese union member, this is also very unique because it was also corroborated in Rose Humley's report interviewing um, Wing Hong Hom at that time. We can also look at um, how Wing Hong Hom sort of resided in Butte. This is from the Butte um, City Directory in 1955. So under Hum, the only entry would be Hum Wing, minor in the Anaconda Company. Um, these are sources we found actually on Monday at the Butte Silver Bow Archives. Um, just looking it with serious historical work, um, working in parallel to what we're doing with the uh, transferring of documents, something that we could only really do in this century, really, to, to get the Chinese side and get the uh, documented, really, you know, crunchy city directory side of things. But we know, we, we can follow Wing Hong Hum residing in Butte for all that time, up until this year. So in 1955-56, he disappears from this record. We can keep looking onto f uh, 57, 50, 58, and he no longer appears. The Hum family, um, it no longer appears in the city directory. But using online resources, Ancestry.com, for example, we can find this, which is the Seattle city, city directory. So we can find in this, which is the 1958 edition of their city directory, that there is a Wing Hong Hum working as a machine operator in the Isaacson Ironworks. So this is significant in that we, ca we can't really do this with sort of the distance between here and Seattle. We need to before, you would need to travel. You'd need to endure all of the hardship of historical work. And, but this type of historical work in this century means that we can do this sort of thing just by searching online with finding corroborating documents in, in a serious way. And including in this process, we, we look in some of this historical society's documents and we find tax returns. So in addition to indicating that he's a tax-paying citizen, that he's just living here and he's trying to make an honest living, we also find things like photographs of his life here that we found just yesterday, in fact. He's going on hunting trips. He's proud of a new car. He's just sort of a working class, middle class dad sitting at home with a Christmas tree covered in tinsel and a border collie. Um, <laughs> so he's got all, all his friends. He's got white friends. He's got, you know, they go on hunting trips together. And it's remarkable the level of assimilation we can see in those documents that we find here. But we also found in those tax returns indicating his occupation, indicating um, his engagement in labor, his social security number. In the 1952 tax return, we find his social security number and using the so same online resources, using those same tools um, that we can use nowadays, we find that he died in November 2000 in Salinas, California. So he would have been alive when we were alive. He would have been alive to see Titanic. <laughs> to see the 90s, That's, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling that we can find this out here, right? We can find this out using the tools that we've been, we've been given in the 21st century. So this is, so this is sort of, w the story isn't over because it's Wednesday and, um, we're, <laughs> and we're, we're getting translations, you know, the translations are being made as we speak in, in Shanghai, perhaps not as we speak, it's Shanghai. Um, but, the point is that the story doesn't end. As Maddie mentioned, we don't know whether Wing Gung Hum actually made it to the U.S. We don't know how necessarily he got from Butte to Seattle or from Seattle to Salinas. But the point is, we can pinpoint these things and identify the trends that make this period of history so interesting to us. Right? Chinese-American history isn't just 
laundries, placer mining. It isn't just those trends that say they, were, they lived here and then they disappeared. But this sort of Chinese, Chinese American history is the, the, the Chinese American history of like our peers in Shanghai. Like their, their parents would have been, you know, ha would have experienced this, this, this period of, of immigration history. Um, with that, I, I think, I don't know if I'm rambling, but I'll give it to Mr. Johnson. I think you can see why I think I'm the luckiest teacher in the world, right? It's easy to be a good teacher when you have kids like this. But to be honest, history teaching when it's done poorly is about memorizing names and dates and facts and spitting it back in a multiple choice test. History teaching when you have kids like this can be critical thinking, analysis, interpretation, synthesis, taking a broad amount of information, deciding what you need to pay attention to, and then figuring out how to effectively communicate that to an audience. So I think this, these are skills that are transferable across any profession that they might go into. I hope they all go on to be high school history teachers like myself. Uh, but they're going to be good at whatever they do because they're passionate, they're enthusiastic, they're hardworking. We've been doing late nights and early mornings, so they, they have been a great team to work with as partners. I'm not their boss in this, we're, we're, we're peers in this. And it's been a, a really unique project, and I'm very blessed to do that. So what we'd like to do next is give you a chance to come up and see these documents and interact with the students. The two filmmakers will be standing over here by the door, and then the three people who've worked most on the Wing Hong Hum documents are going to be up here. You can come up and take a look. Please don't touch any of, I'll say any of the documents. Some of these over here are just reproductions, but on the, the far side, they're the actual original documents. So please bend down, look close. I'm going to be taking some pictures. We can have some time for questions, kind of in the informal time as people come up and look, and then you can approach each of us if you have a specific question. I want to thank the Montana Historical Society for their vision and flexibility to help make these type of things happen. Thank you for coming out on a Wednesday afternoon and another round of applause for the students on this.